You may be seated. And you can turn to our scripture reading, which is Ecclesiastes chapter 10, starting in verse 16 and going through chapter 11, verse 6. It's uh, not one that really aligns with the section breaks in our printed Bibles, but you've heard me go off on that before, so we're not going to worry about it. Um, Looking at this passage, uh, the expression herding cats came to mind. I looked up the definition, just the technical definition, well, technical definition, uh, one dictionary definition. It's an idiom denoting a futile attempt to control or organize a class of entities which are inherently uncontrollable, as in the difficulty of attempting to command individual cats into a group, a herd. Um, And in preaching through some sections of Ecclesiastes, it sometimes feels like I'm trying to herd cats uh, because there are a lot of different ideas sometimes in a section uh, and in this section uh, this evening as well, uh, which like they're all trying to go off in different directions and do their own thing. And so it can be hard to pull them all together uh, as if to make a sort of a unified statement, a unified message, and this section that we're looking at tonight is a little bit like that, uh, but there are a couple of common uh, uh, repeated themes that are intertwined here, and I think they can be brought together as a herd, Um, but it takes some work. So I do think there's a unified message here, but it will take some effort uh, to fit the pieces together, and so we'll just... uh, dive in and we'll work our way through it. So let's get to our reading, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 16, reading through chapter 11, verse 6. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. And even when there are so many different thoughts that strike us and it can be difficult to concentrate or to even grasp some uh, of these uh, mysterious sayings, Lord, we pray that you grant us your spirit and grant us patience, grant us uh, just uh, good comprehension this evening so that uh, we may be like uh, the man, the woman of God planted by streams of living water that uh, we might bear fruit uh, to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm sure you've all uh, had the experience of getting to the end of a day and looking back and wondering to yourself, did I get anything done today at all? Could have been a day at work, could have been a day as a homeschool parent, and you think, did my kids learn anything today? Because their minds seem to have been all over the place, uh, not on their work, and I'm looking at most of the kids here this evening. I'm also told that people get busier in retirement, but still, I expect it even happens for you retired folks. You get to the end of the day, and you realize you you didn't do any work around the house, you didn't clean anything or fix anything, you didn't work in the garden, didn't read a book, you didn't spend the time with friends. I mean, what did you do all day long? Well, you know, some people, they don't have the pro- some people don't, do not have the problem of getting distracted and wasting time. Some people truly uh, redeem the time, as uh, uh, Scripture says. They make every moment count. Uh, one of the important Presbyterian theologians of the kind of mid-20th century, actually important in the family tree of our own denomination, uh, J. Oliver Buswell, uh, he was once in the hospital recovering from an illness, and this, another important Presbyterian theologian, um, the apologist Cornelius Van Til, uh, visited him in the hospital. And apparently when Van Til arrived, he found Buswell, who was, I think, a couple of doctorates, taught in many uh, seminaries, colleges, institutions, and so on. Uh, Van Til arrived, he found Buswell in his hospital bed, drilling himself on Hebrew vocabulary words. He's recuperating in a hospital bed, uh, but there he was. He was using his time to refresh his Hebrew, just like a seminary student might do, using little note cards. Now, that's what I call not letting any moment go to waste. Well, I think our passage this evening, it's addressing things that can lead to distraction. Distraction from our vocation, distraction from our calling, whatever it is, whether your calling is in the workplace, in the home, in church, we all get distracted from time to time, and so we become inefficient, we become unproductive, sometimes we even become lazy. Uh, And so uh, it's the problem of distraction, and this passage, it's really focusing on two different kinds of distractions. Uh, The first one is the distraction of pleasures, and then the second one is the distraction of politics, uh, with all the uncertainty that politics brings. And so I'm going to just address these two uh, in that order. So first we'll look at the distraction of pleasures, uh, which uh, our passage talks about. And this is really how it starts out in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Uh, We get this contrast between uh, the kings and rulers of different nations. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So it's, it's contrasting two different nations led by rulers with two different approaches to feasting. Uh, literally, it's just eating. Uh, But the implication is lavish eating, which is accompanied by drinking. And uh, in verse 16, this king, he's called a child or a young man. And the word that's used there, it doesn't necessarily indicate somebody who's a minor, you know, 11, 12 years old. 
Um, it could refer to a young adult. Joseph was called a youth while he was serving in Egypt. So the word here, it's got, it can be a range of ages, somebody who's you know, younger, but not necessarily uh, what we would call a child. But spiritually, this king is a child. He's childish. Uh, because the first thing that he pursues when he gets up in the morning is having a party with his buddies. And he does, it, he does it in the morning. You know, those are the peak work hours. Some of you are slow to wake up, I'm sure. But for most people, that's your prime working time there. And that's when you really need to be focusing on the day's tasks. And it's just that these people, these rulers... They're more concerned with pleasure, and so they feast in the morning. First thing when they get up, and uh, verse 17 speaks about drunkenness. So it, they're not just you know, having a good breakfast. They're feasting and drinking a lot early in the day. Now, somebody who's been properly educated, brought up, trained for ruling, or a son of the nobility, that's what verse 17 says, that person does their work first. So then they can relax and enjoy a feast at the proper time. Uh, this guy also enjoys food and drink. The book of Ecclesiastes has encouraged that multiple times. We've heard it several times. Go enjoy your food, enjoy your wine, etc., etc. But he does it at the proper time, and he doesn't do it to excess. He does it for strength, not for drunkenness, verse 17 says. So there's two different mindsets here. There's a pleasure-seeking one and a wise, responsible, diligent one. And you can probably think of people you know who fit either one of those descriptions. Uh, you probably know people who will work hard, they may play hard afterwards, but they'll put in the work first. You probably also know people who just want to play and don't want to put in any work at all. They just want to have fun. Uh, those are the two different mindsets that those verses are talking about. And verse 18, uh, it's kind of, it, it sounds kind of like this uh, little bit of an ambiguous proverb, but it's really telling you this is what the result will be when, it's, when a nation's rulers just want to play. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. I think it's talking about the political house, you know, the ruling house, the dynasty there. It will start declining as the rulers become lazy, as they become focused on seeking their own pleasures. You read verse 19, you're not exactly sure what to make of it when you first heard it. I thought I heard maybe somebody snort with laughter when I read it. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, I just said, Ecclesiastes, it, it encourages us to enjoy food and drink. But, as we just saw, it encourages that within the proper limits and at the proper time. So it's not just, you know, eat and drink a bunch. Use it properly as a gift from God. Use it thankfully. And Ecclesiastes, it also knows that money won't solve all your problems. It knows the limitations of wealth. It's talked about that many times 
As a man came, so he goes. He came into the world with nothing, he's going to leave with nothing. So money, not actually the answer to everything. I don't think verse 19 is actually giving us the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes or the perspective of the preacher uh, himself. Uh, It's not just telling people, you know, hey, go make more money. I think verse 19 is trying to capture the mindset of the pleasure-seeking person. So you could kind of put quotation marks around verse 19. Uh, This is the sort of thing that foolish kings and princes and rulers, like verse 16, uh, the sort of people who feast in the morning, this is the sort of thing they would say. It kind of captures their philosophy of life. Yeah, eat, drink, money's going to solve everything. Let's have a good time. The wise person is much more discerning and much more careful than that. So an implication of these uh, couple of verses here, verses 16 through 19, uh, one of the implications here is that wise people learn to practice delayed gratification. They understand that it's good to wait for the things that we want sometimes. We may want to feast, but get the work done first and then celebrate afterwards, okay? It's it's not that complicated. It's just, you know, we want to go straight to the feast. After you've done your work, that's the proper time to feast when you've fulfilled your responsibilities. And I think uh, this idea, it, it flows into chapter 11 as well, although again, the It seems a little obscure when we first read it. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Um, There are a lot of different opinions of what this means to cast your bread upon the waters. Um, Some people think that it's talking about being generous, and the reason they say that is really because of verse 2. Uh, which speaks of giving portions to seven to eight, giving portions to a lot of people. Some people think that that's talking about generosity, and so then they kind of backfill that into verse one. But I don't think that's uh, the right interpretation. I think uh, it's still talking about delayed gratification, like chapter 10 was just talking about. And I'm not going to get into all the details here, um, as tempting as it is for me. Uh, I think the idea of casting your bread upon the waters is the idea of put your bread out of your mind for a while. Put celebrating, put feasting out of your mind when it's time to get down to work so you can focus on the tasks that you're called to do. And then later, after many days, you'll find it again. You'll get to rest and relax and enjoy things at the proper time but let it be at the proper time. So I think that's the idea of casting your bread on the waters in chapter 11, verse 1. You put in the work first, be diligent, get the job done, and eventually that bread, that celebration that you have deferred, you'll find it again, and you'll get to enjoy it at the proper time. And then uh, in verse 2, to kind of paraphrase this idea of you know, giving a portion to seven or even to eight. I think, this ha- I think this is the basic idea of being industrious and really um, 
developing multiple skill sets, we could say, or having multiple business interests or income streams, however you want to put it. Uh, in other words, if you can avoid it, uh, don't just have one skill set and one possible source of income because that verse is saying the future is uncertain. Economies change, industries change, sometimes whole professions uh, uh, disappear as technology changes. I have been looking for years now uh, to find someone who can fix an actual wind-up clock. You know, that the old-fashioned kind you had to use a key to crank up. Uh, nobody makes those anymore, and nobody learned, knows how to service those things anymore. You know, clock making and repair, it's an industry, it's a profession that nobody goes into anymore because there's really no demand for it. Uh, and so if fixing clocks was all that you did, if that's the only skill you had, you would be in dire straits these days. Um, and it's very frustrating for people like me, and there are others out there who have these beautiful clocks that are totally useless because i got nobody to fix them. Anyway, so I think chapter 11, verse 2 is saying develop multiple skills or give a portion of your energy, your attention to different things. So that, you know, if your clock-making skills uh, are no longer in demand, you've got other skills to fall back on. So it's talking about working diligently at every opportunity. And that's really the summary of this section, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, if you look at that. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Maybe you're farming... The work you did in the morning is going to, maybe it's going to be a good crop there. Maybe it's going to be a bad year. So maybe the stuff you did with your hands in the evening, maybe that's what will, you know, see you through the lean times or whatever. So um, this is a real hard work sort of passage. And it's just telling us, don't seek your pleasures first. Be wise do the work that you're called to. Make sure you're diligent in that. Uh, and don't be distracted by pleasures. Because if that's where your mind is always going, you won't be diligent and uh, you won't be effective in your work. There's other verses in this text that I think speak about the, this uh, theme of diligence and so on. But it also kind of provides a transition to the other major distraction that this passage is talking about, which is politics. Some people get distracted uh, too much by politics. And so, again, they fail to fulfill their calling, their vocation in life. Now, this is verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11. Uh, again, kind of obscure when we first read them. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Side note, I mentioned this, I think, very early in this series. That was a verse that was very important in R.C. Sproul's spiritual life, spiritual awakening. Um, now, I don't think he was interpreting it correctly. Sorry, I just said that. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, just a little interesting tidbit for you. In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
uh, that verse 4 there, that gives you this idea of here's somebody who's not doing the work they're supposed to be doing. They're not sowing. They're not reaping. Um, verse 4, it's talking about somebody who's just observing the wind, regarding the clouds, and so he winds up, as a result, not sowing his seed when he needs to. And, of course, if you don't do that, you'll have nothing to reap during the harvest later on. Now, there's one thing you have to understand here. Uh, You didn't have to be a professional weather forecaster in ancient Israel in order to be a successful farmer because there are very uh, predictable and well-defined rainy seasons. The Old Testament talks about the early rains and the later rains, and these were the seasons of the year when the rains came. And you, you didn't need the farmer's almanac to tell you what those seasons were, You didn't need to watch the news. You didn't need an app. You didn't even need to look at the skies. (laughs) Uh, You just needed to look at your calendar, and from, you know, whatever the date was, whatever time of year it was, you would know whether you were in the season where you could expect regular and actually very heavy torrential rainfall. It was very intense rain. It would soak the earth and make it able for you to, to plow and sow and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you had to do your plowing and your sowing, your planting in a very short period of time, which means that you needed to be ready. You needed to have your tools in shape. You needed to have you know, your seed all, all lined up on the shelf there, ready to go. You did not have the time to stand around looking up at the clouds and asking, you know, Reckon it's going to rain today? Or if you actually waited till it started raining before you started you know, preparing and gathering your equipment, you already missed your window of opportunity to get your work done. It's going to be too late by then. So that's the picture that Ecclesiastes is painting. Somebody who's not focused on the real work they need to be doing, being ready for their uh, farming and so on. There's kind of watching the skies, does it look like it's going to rain? If it looks like it, then I'll get my stuff in order. That's the picture here. Okay, now these, uh, these verses, they talk about winds that blow down trees. The preacher's actually speaking metaphorically here uh, because he's not talking primarily about weather and climate. He's actually talking about politics and political affairs, this is something I talked about very early in this series, so if, don't, if this sounds totally new to you, that's okay. Um, it's been a while. But we uh, talked about this when we were looking at chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, verse 6, the preacher talked about this wind blowing to the south and then to the north and just circling around and around and around and never really getting anywhere or doing anything. Now, uh, the strange thing back there in chapter 1 is that it doesn't mention the wind blowing to the east or to the west, which is unusual, actually, because the wind blows in every direction, and the Bible talks about east winds and west winds. I made the point back then in chapter 1 when we looked at it that uh, uh, the, the Ecclesiastes is actually drawing upon the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, which talks about the kings of the south and of the north, which were really... Uh, uh, ruling houses of the Greeks, the Ptolemaic and Seleucid 
dynasties, if you want their names, they would eventually take control of Judea. Daniel was prophesying this time when the Greeks would be in control over Judea, uh, and there would be these two dynasties kind of duking it out over who gets control of Judea. So Daniel's prophesying this time, and uh, I made the point when we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 that I think Ecclesiastes is being written uh, during the fulfillment of that, when the, uh, these Greek uh, dynasties, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, were actually having wars, uh, taking control one way and the other over Judea. So Judea is living under Greek overlords at the time, and they're having to just kind of suffer uh, while these political winds, they sometimes shifted to the south and sometimes to the north, the kings of the south, the kings of the north. In the end, it makes no great difference if you're trying to be a faithful Israelite, faithful member of God's covenant. It's still a miserable existence living under foreign oppression and persecution. Well, I think we get that same imagery of winds blowing to the south and to the north uh, here in Ecclesiastes 11, verses 3 and 4. Um, and here it's blowing down trees. Again, notice it's blowing down trees to the south and to the north, but not to the east or to the west. Because again, I think it's drawing upon Daniel chapter 11. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I think I have. In the Bible, trees are often a symbol for kings. If you look at Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, symbolized in a vision as a tree. Uh, so, when the preacher says, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He's just talking about these two ruling houses of the Greeks, the kings of the south, the kings of the north. You know, whichever side wins out, tree could fall to the north, could fall to the south. Whichever side wins out, nothing much is going to change for the people of Judea. But the problem is, what uh, these verses are talking about is if you, know, if you were spending your time intensely observing all these political affairs and the conflict between these two uh, dynasties, and if you're spending your time trying to kind of calculate and judge, you know, which, is this going to be better for us if the Ptolemies win out? Is it better for us if the Seleucids win out? If you spend your time on that, you're basically wasting your time. That's what it's saying. Tree may fall to the south, it may fall to the north. Who cares? It's just one more vain, godless, pagan ruler who's just going to be followed up by another vain, godless, pagan ruler. And the winds will just keep blowing, the trees will keep falling. But if you're spending your time watching the skies and trying to watch the wind, observing the political winds, you're not going to get your work done you'll be distracted. So you'll be distracted not by pleasure-seeking, but by politics. This passage really has a lot to say about politics and political rulers. Actually, the whole book of Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about politics. Um, but this is how the passage started in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, right? It's talking about pleasure-seeking rulers versus wise, responsible rulers. And so it 
it's probing into the kind of lazy, pleasure-seeking mindset that makes the roof of the house, the roof of the dynasty, start sinking in. People of ancient Judea knew exactly what the preacher was talking about here because they'd seen it in their Babylonian overlords and then they'd seen it in their Persian overlords and now they're seeing it in their Greek overlords, these selfish kings who are just concerned with their own pleasures. They'd even seen it in quite a few numbers, a number of kings from the house of David for that matter. Not all those guys were good. Go read Kings. Uh, The people of Judea, they knew what corrupt, self-serving, selfish political leadership looked like. And do you think that there would be these moments of frustration when they were tempted to grumble about it a little bit? Of course, (laughs) of course they were tempted to grumble about it and complain about it. And it's for that reason that the preacher gives us this exhortation that I think is much more challenging than any of us realize. It's chapter 10, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Think about this. So it's saying, don't curse the king... Or don't curse the wealthy ruling class, the rich, even in your thoughts. Ooh. The preacher is actually assuming that you wouldn't dare to say anything bad about your foolish king or about these uh, you know, foolish rulers. Uh, at this moment, the preacher is being very much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Telling guys, you know, don't even think lustful thoughts. You know, maybe you haven't committed adultery. Maybe you don't use coarse speech. Maybe you don't look at pornography. But verily I say unto you, don't even think impure thoughts, Jesus says. Jesus really raises the bar there in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I think right here, the preacher is really raising the bar as well. You're not a political revolutionary, and you pay your taxes. That's good, and... In church, you guys pray for the president. That's great. And of course, in addition to that, you certainly have never said anything insulting about your rulers. But now verily, I say unto you, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. I'm just going to say, I think Ecclesiastes 10 verse 20 is a verse that practically every Christian I've ever met feels perfectly free to ignore. They must be cursing the king in their hearts because I've heard them cursing him verbally with their mouths. You know, this verse, it applies not just to kings, it applies to presidents. It applies to how you think and how you talk about the President of the United States of America. Just let that thought sink in for a minute. It may not be an issue for you with respect to the current President, or maybe it is an issue (laughs) for many people that would be an issue with the current President, 
But I know very well that it applies to how Christians thought and talked about Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Christians don't have to agree with their policies. In fact, they should not agree with a lot of their policies. But that will never excuse some of the raw hatred I've heard Christians express about those two presidents. They were cursing him with their words, and so clearly they were cursing him in their hearts as well. Brothers and sisters, I know it's well after the, the fact, those guys are long out of office, but still, you probably have some curses either in thought or in word about those presidents that you need to repent of. Again, hear me well. I'm not saying you need to support what those presidents did or stood for. I'm not saying you have to support whatever any incumbent president uh, says or does. You can disagree with their perspectives and policies as much as you want. But I am saying, you know, take a good hard look at chapter 10, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. And you got to look at that and you ask yourself, have I ever cursed the king in my thoughts or in my words? I can't speak personally for any of you, um, but I know that I have. I've totally done that. And I'm not a highly political person, <laughs> uh, but I've thought and said stuff about those two particular presidents and even the current one, there's been things I've thought and said that, uh, as a Christian, I've got no business doing. That's uh, stuff I'll have to repent of uh, on my own. The thing is, we can get distracted from our mission, from our vocation, either by fixating on the ruler who's currently in power over us, or by watching the political winds and trying to figure out where they're blowing. Church gets distracted by politics all the time. Um, some of you maybe have seen this. There's this quote that's sort of floating around the internet. Uh, it claims to be from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, and it talks about how the devil uh, seeks to get Christians fixated on and distracted by politics. Well, uh, sorry to say this, but it's not a genuine C.S. Lewis quote um, from that book. <clears throat> it's not that far off from things that Lewis actually did say, and things that he actually said in that book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, so I'll give you a genuine quote from that book. Um, it's a book in which we have, it's fictional, we have this uh, senior devil, Screwtape, who advises this junior devil, Wormwood, how to ruin the faith of this Christian man, how to undermine it. And uh, so Screwtape uh, starts talking to his uh, junior uh, assistant, Wormwood, uh, it gets to this uh, question of politics. And so there's the question, whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, are unbalanced and prone to factions, and it is our business to inflame them. 
Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity, he is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. Hope you're able to follow that. Um, it's, it is an example of uh, how politics and our faith oftentimes do get mixed in an unbiblical sort of way. I do think our faith has political implications. The book of Ecclesiastes most definitely has a lot of political implications in it. But I, hopefully you, you know what I'm talking about here, where a particular you know, political movement, then we kind of start reading into the Bible and reading into our theology. And that's, uh, that's the great danger that Lewis is trying to, to uh, bring out in that passage. You have to remember that this is one devil advising another. So, you know, you have to kind of read it backwards. Like, this is the way the bad guys are approaching things. Okay, you know what I'm saying. Well, this is the last section in Ecclesiastes that really deals with the issue of politics. It's come up several times in the book. But since this is the last time it will come up, uh, I want to make a few final applications, particularly on this theme. Um, first is more of a general one. You've already figured this out. Uh, the preacher is simply urging us to put our heads down and work when it's time to work. So let's pursue the, the mission that Christ has given the church collectively, or uh, what, you pursue whatever vocation he's given you individually. We do need to remember we are the church militant right now. We're not the church triumphant. So this is not really our season for feasting and celebration all the time. That time is coming, but not in this age. Uh, so the Lord, he does graciously give us those moments of celebration, those you know, moments of rest, respite, those times of enjoyment even now. But chiefly right now, this is our time to labor. Jesus says, John 9, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. This is the daytime, this is the time for working, and Ecclesiastes is trying to keep us uh, on task with that. That's kind of a general application, but uh, more specifically to the political issues, uh, the second application here is we need to not be political junkies uh, who spend more time studying political currents in the world more than we study Scripture. I do see Christians who, in my judgment, they become distracted by the politics of our country or of the world. So let's keep our priorities straight. Let's study the word first before we try to make sense of the world. Uh, third, and I already mentioned this, so just as a reminder, we really need to work at guarding our thoughts regarding the president and all rulers at all times. 
and especially when they are the rulers that we didn't vote for. Um, I mean, if we don't start modeling this, if we don't start doing this and modeling this, who is? I mean, are unbelievers going to learn that kind of graciousness before believers learn it? I don't think so. So we need to guard our thoughts uh, and our words uh, regarding our political rulers, which doesn't mean we can't speak truth about them. We heard a great sermon this morning on uh, that theme. Uh, Fourth, and finally, we need to trust God to work things out. That includes the elections that don't go our way, which is probably, on average, about half of them, (laughs) you know? Just, that's just statistics there. Probably about half those elections are going to go our way and about half are not. And, you know, the outcome of an election does not ruin God's plans. We need to look at verse uh, 5 of chapter 11. Haven't said anything about it yet. Uh, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, what if I told you that God had a plan, God was doing a work during the Clinton administration or during the Obama administration? Well, I mean, you kind of have to believe that, right? (laughs) Uh, But you kind of don't want to, Uh, or at least a lot of us as conservative uh, Christians, we don't really want to admit that quite openly, Uh, but if we think about it, you know, no right-thinking Christian would say that God's work just stopped, came to a standstill during those political administrations. Doesn't mean that what they were doing was good. Doesn't mean it couldn't have been critiqued, criticized, you know, called to repentance, and so on. Uh, But God was doing his work then. Well, Same thing, uh, even if the next election goes in a direction that we don't want, God's still going to be doing his work. And verse 5 is just a reminder that you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Some stuff happens, and we don't like it, and we don't see the purpose in it. That's our problem, really. That's the problem of our limited knowledge. God's still doing his work. It's still perfect, and we have to trust that. So we need to stop worrying whether the tree's going to fall to the south or to the north, to the the right or to the left, we could say, because the fields are white for harvest. Uh, So let's put our heads down. Let's pursue the mission of the church. Let's go. Let's make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything that Christ has said. It's a simple mission, and we need to stay focused on pursuing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would grant us uh, zeal, grant us persistence, and Lord, grant us the, uh, just the focus that we need not to be distracted either by our own pleasures or by uh, the politics around us. Lord, it's uh, hard to uh, avoid. And Lord, we know there are also other distractions as well, distractions of our own sin uh, uh, or uh, 
just uh, so many other things that can call us away from pursuing uh, our task, the task that you have charged us with. So Lord, we pray that you would help us as a congregation to uh, be recommitted to the Great Commission, to uh, pursuing the world, uh, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them. And we pray that we might see uh, fruit from the harvest, not for our own namesake, but for your name. May you be glorified. May your church grow. May the host of heaven uh, be increased in number through our labors, through uh, the indwelling and the working of your Holy Spirit in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.